On a chilly autumn night in the middle of September, a woman was murdered on the side of a quiet suburban street, mere feet from her front door. The investigation that followed uncovered dark secrets that, it could be debated, were more sinister than the murder itself. Okay, on to the show. When Sean Watson and Marjorie Potts met in the early 80s, they knew they were meant to be with each other. All it took was the wild look and his striking green eyes for Marjorie to fall hard and fast. She worked the night shift at a local Krispy Kreme owned by her father, and he was supposed to be grounded. Sneaking away from rugby that night turned out to be the best decision Sean would ever make. Marjorie, a young girl with auburn hair and a smile that could light up a Christmas tree, lived with her parents in a converted attic apartment while she worked her way through a practical nursing associate's degree at Asheville Buncombe Technical Community College. Sean, on the other hand, had a troubled home life that often landed him at the local police station. He had no interest in college and spent his free time recruiting members for a rugby team he was trying to form. After scarfing down an entire box of donuts on that fateful night, Sean looked up to find Marjorie standing by his table with a fistful of napkins and a smile on her face. The two spent the rest of her shift chatting as she cleaned up for the night, and he stole the occasional free sample from the next morning's batch. It wasn't long before Sean started skipping rugby practice and Marjorie let her homework slip in lieu of spending time together. Soon, Marjorie had an easily hidden and explained away piece of twine wrapped around her left ring finger, and Sean had one more secret in his repertoire. One chilly January afternoon, a tearful Marjorie met Sean as he exited the locker room and announced she was pregnant. At only 19, they knew their parents would be devastated, but with nowhere else to go, they decided it would be better to tell them than run away with no money. Sean's parents kicked him out and Marjorie's were devastated but sympathetic, so the two were allowed to move into Marjorie's apartment. Thanks to the pot's strict Christian morals, however, the pair were forced to legally marry before they did so. It wasn't the white wedding Marjorie or her mother had envisioned, but it went off at the local courthouse without a hitch. Once the two settled in, domestic bliss was all but what they experienced. With Marjorie's belly growing more each day, Sean was forced to get a job, a legal job that is. Selling weed to freshmen under the bleachers would only get them so far. Marjorie was soon bedridden and unable to work. They grew apart emotionally, but stayed together so they could keep their home and some semblance of stability for their impending children. After borrowing a small loan from Marjorie's parents, which all but severed what relationship she had with them, the pair moved out of her parents' house, hoping a new place, new jobs, and an overall change of pace would be just what they needed. They moved to Woodfin, North Carolina, a sleepy southern spot just north of Asheville. The eclectic town was an idyllic suburb that housed more trees than people. Their new home on Crestfield Avenue was a ranch-style home, separated from neighboring houses about half an acre. It was a small three-bedroom house with a large backyard and a screened-in front porch. 
They moved in with little but grew their collection of furniture thanks to local yard sales, thrift stores, and generous neighbors. It was one of these neighbors, Beth Lightly, that made a lasting impact on the family. It's reported that when she offered to give them a coffee table she never used, a friendship between Beth and Marjorie blossomed. The two became so close it was not uncommon for Beth to be invited to dinners and birthday parties. Beth, a single woman with no kids or husband to speak of, and at least 10 years Marjorie Sr., took the couple in under her wings and filled the gap they had both had in their lives for a strong female caregiver. For a while, the move and a new friendship were exactly what the pair needed, but then came Victor and Clive. Born in September 1984, the fraternal twin boys made an already stressful life nearly unbearable for Marjorie and Sean. Sean took over the finances for the house and became the sole breadwinner, working as an industrial painter at AVL Technologies, a plant that manufactures charging stations for electric cars. Marjorie's income from Krispy Kreme wasn't enough to warrant the gas it cost to get her back and forth, so she quit to stay home full-time with the boys. Several months after they had moved in, Marjorie broke the news. She would be able to help support the family from home with a new job as a direct sales agent. The company, Mary Kay, had recently been founded as a way to not only make a name for women in the workforce, but enable women to work from home and empower themselves. In his testimony, Sean stated, It felt like I didn't have a choice. Our marriage was suffering and Beth was the only thing that calmed Marge down. To see her so happy convinced me it was the right thing to do at the time. Turns out, the direct sales company required Marjorie to buy her stock and being new in town with few connections, making sales was difficult when her competition was her best friend. Sean quickly realized the financial burden had yet again been thrust on him with no aid or end in sight. With two boys nearing the age of five, he just couldn't take it. I just left. I couldn't handle it. I packed my bags, kissed the boys, left a note under each of their pillows explaining the best I could what happened, and left, Sean stated during the trial. Victor and Clive woke the next morning to find their mother sobbing on the kitchen floor. At such a young age, it was hard for them to understand what had happened. I don't remember much besides running up to my mom and handing her the note I found under my pillow. I think I thought it would help explain something and make her happy again. She read it, kept crying, and threw the paper across the room. That was Clive Watson, the brother of our murderer and son of Marjorie and Sean. He was only five at the time, so he couldn't have known the gravity of the situation. However, Victor knew. In journal entries, which were the only admissible evidence in court since Victor was a selective mute, he wrote, I still have my letter and keep it in my pocket all the time, just in case dad does come back. Unfortunately, Sean went on to live a lonely life at Carolina Village Mobile Home Park on the outskirts of Virginia. Devastated by the credit card debt she was now in thanks to her Mary Case stock, Depressed by the daunting task of raising two boys on her own and drowning in the realization that the only friend she had made betrayed her, Marjorie was forced to go back to work. She was soon hired as a receptionist at the local hospital 
and cut ties completely with Beth. The boys spent the next few years attending Woodfin Elementary from kindergarten through fourth grade. Then they attended North Buncombe for both middle school and high school. This is where Victor met Ingrid Yetter. Victor wore glasses. He had a gaunt frame, dark hair, and didn't fit in with any group on the high school campus. He sat alone during lunch and, due to the fact that he refused to talk, was targeted by several bullies, none worse than Ingrid. Ingrid Yetter came from a high-class family and had been sent to North Buncombe to gain important people skills her parents feared she would lack given exposure to a preparatory school. Mother and father wanted me to mingle with the less fortunate in order to gain a better understanding of the world. It didn't work. Ingrid commented whilst twirling her auburn hair between her fingers as she gave her testimony. I wasn't able to find out a lot about Ingrid besides what was stated in Victor's journals, but by all accounts, she seems to have been your classic mean girl. Not a single student had a nice thing to say about her. Here's an excerpt from one of Victor's diaries to give you a bit of insight. Ingrid is the bitchiest bitch that has ever bitched, and even that's being too nice. Every time she sees me in the hallway, she shoves me into the lockers with her hip and tells the closest teacher it was my fault. Somehow, they always believe her and she gets away with it. Not only that, but the other day I heard her start a rumor about Penny Everton that she was throwing up in the bathroom after lunch. I wonder why she's so mean. I'm going to pause the case right here so you can hear a word from our sponsors. When it comes to beauty products, we have so many choices. So why not ask for more from your favorite brands? I know for me, I'm definitely motivated by what the company does in terms of how clean their ingredients are, if they test on animals, etc. So I'm motivated now more than ever to stick to high quality, amazing products that are both vegan and cruelty free. That's why I'm so glad I discovered Thrive Cosmetics. They provide amazing coverage that highlight your best features, which happen to be my cheeks, and are created for long-lasting wear. The mascara is amazing. I love having really long eyelashes without having to use falsies, and this gives me the illusion that I am wearing fake eyelashes. Um, I also love the Buildable Blur CC Cream. It really gives me a really great amount of coverage whenever I'm applying that foundation. Thrive Cosmetics products are effective in more than just one way. For every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates to help women who are in need thrive. Those causes include emerging from homelessness, surviving domestic abuse, and fighting cancer. And I really love that aspect. I love when companies give back to those who are really in need. You can auto-replenish your products so you'll never run out of your Thrive Cosmetics essentials like their Liquid Lash Extension Mascara, which is my favorite. So start thriving and help women in need today by going to thrivecosmetics.com TCFC. And enter code TCFC for 15% off your first purchase. That's T-H-R-I-V-E-C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash TCFC. And enter code TCFC for 15% off. Once again, thrivecosmetics.com slash TCFC. Ingrid was a generally cruel girl, but for some reason seemed to target Victor specifically. When asked why during the trial, she simply responded, I don't know, 
He was weird. The relationship between the two came to a head one spring afternoon when Ingrid decided to start a rumor that Victor had, well, an extra extremity. Of course, because hormones rage and tempers flare when one is in high school, this was basically a death sentence for Victor, and the young boy became more of an outcast than he already was, which unfortunately began to affect his mental health. It was just a joke I started with my friends, like wouldn't it be weirder if the weird kid had something extra weird about him? Then it just took off from there and pretty soon the whole school thought it was true, Ingrid said. Some jury members even stated she was stifling a smile as she did so. Surprisingly though, Victor's diary entries didn't mention the incident at all. A few pages had been torn out of the book before it was entered as evidence. It's unclear whether this was Victor's doing or they had been removed intentionally prior to the investigation. Clive, Victor's twin brother, was not immune to the new reputation his brother received. Clive was an average student, had a handful of friends, and faded into the masses like the rest of the student body. He and his brother were left to fend for themselves once their mother took up her new job, but in an effort to remain independent, Clive and Victor would rarely interact at school. Due to the treatment Victor received, Clive was labeled as the weird kid's brother, and although he tried to move away from it, it eventually spiraled into Clive, breaking all contact with his brother. Today, Clive told me he doesn't talk to me at school anymore because he wants to be his own person, not some twin that's related to the weird kid. It kind of hurt my feelings, but I understand. An excerpt from Victor's diary read, The two were brothers by blood only, and once Clive joined the football team, interactions that were already few and far between became non-existent. This, according to child psychologist Kenny Irwin, explains in part what happened next. Victor was already distant from his peers. He was now distant from his brother, and his mother was rarely home. Things seemed to escalate after this entry was written on September 24th, 2000. I think my house is haunted. Last night, I saw a girl in my room. She was really pretty with red hair. She stood in the corner of my room and stared at me. I've never seen a girl look at me like that before. It was like she wanted me to kiss her. I don't know. Anyways, she stood there and was kind of glowing around the edges. Maybe she was a ghost. Irwin stated during the trial, It sounds a bit far-fetched to believe the small home the Watsons lived in was not only housing a broken family, but also the spirit of a young seductress. Nevertheless, Victor ran with this vision. It plagued him for months, eventually spiraling into a mental illness that, in my official diagnosis, I've determined is a form of paraphilia or sexual deviancy. I've also speculated that the occurrence of this vision could be congruent with the distance Victor feels from his mother. The way he described the apparition is eerily similar to that of his mother not to mention the resemblance to Marjorie Watson, Ingrid bears as well. That last sentence was simply thrown in there by Irwin as an afterthought, but what he said was something prosecutors repeatedly try to use as evidence that this murder may have been premeditated. Marjorie and Ingrid had the same hair color that was even the same length. They were nearly the same height and even had the same build. 
Were it not for the difference of about 20 years, the two could have been twins. Erwin went on to explain that the distance he felt from his mother, paired with the attention he received from classmates, thanks to Ingrid, caused his brain to cook up a delusion. He explained in other entries that he swore things fell off of shelves, the lights turned on and off by themselves, and that girl appeared multiple times to him just as he was settling down for the night. When asked, Clive and Marjorie both said they never experienced anything they believed to be paranormal in nature. Paraphilia, according to the DSM, is the experience of intense sexual arousal to atypical objects, situations, fantasies, behaviors, or individuals. Other instances of this disorder include sadism, masochism, voyeurism, and fetishism. What Victor was experiencing here was a form of this disorder, labeled on its own as spectrophilia, or a sexual attraction to ghosts and spirits. Occasionally, people claim to be sexually abused, coerced into, or seduced to perform sexual acts. If you're familiar with the film Rosemary's Baby, you'll know what I mean. It was sometimes used to explain away an unexpected pregnancy or even shield the consciousness of the victim from the reality of a horrific sexual assault. In Victor's case, experts agree that the combination of an absent family, as well as the bullying he experienced in school, was fodder for the flames of sexual deviancy. Irwin went on to say, In cases where the child is alone, ostracized, or bullied, feelings of loneliness can manifest in ways such as spectrophilia and other fetishes. Truly, there's nothing wrong with these so-called kinks as long as they manifest in ways that don't hurt the afflicted or the subjects of their fetishism. Another entry, dated February 16, 2001, states Victor had a vivid dream that the girl approached his bed as he slept that night and forced herself on him. She touched me over the sheets and I didn't know what to do. I closed my eyes, but I could still feel her hand. When I opened them, she was gone. Clive stated he heard noises from Victor's room, but because he stayed quiet about the girls he would bring over, Clive did the same in a passive display of respect for his brother's autonomy. Marjorie stated she never noticed any noises, but did remember coming home from overnight shifts to find a haggard-looking Victor watching TV. So, now we've met Victor. He has no friends, is the target of the most influential bully at school, spends most of his days alone, and thanks to the state of mental health care in the late 90s, is grossly ignored by teachers and counselors. It's a recipe for a killer. And that's just what happened. You see, Victor was shy and lonely, but that didn't mean he avoided the urge to interact with others in his small town. With his mother working 12-hour shifts up to five days a week and a brother on the football team, Victor was alone at home as well. With this free time, rather than sit around the home, too poor to afford video games and cable, he would walk the streets of his town. One such exploration took him to the Food Lion Skate Park in Asheville, about an hour away from his home. There he saw kids skating, chatting, having fun, and somehow all enjoying themselves in one solitary activity that brought them all together. Victor dove headfirst into the hobby, asking for a board and helmet for his next birthday. 
He even started talking in small sentences to his family and new friends. It was like I had a new son, Marjorie said. I wasn't home a lot to see him grow up, but those few words he spoke to me right around his 16th birthday were golden. I hadn't heard his voice since he was five. The first words out of his mouth were, Mom, I want a skateboard. This trek to the park became a regular occurrence, and on more than one occasion, Victor detailed his concern for his safety during the trip in his diary. Because of the strict laws surrounding gun ownership in the state of North Carolina, Victor carried a ballistic knife with him that he'd fashioned out of an old kitchen knife, a heavy-duty spring, and a metal tube. Ballistic knives and anything resembling them are incredibly dangerous and extremely illegal in the state of North Carolina. However, due to the financial restraints Victor and his family were under, he used what resources were available to him. Because of Victor's stature, reputation, and experience in hand-to-hand combat, i.e. none, he wanted something that could be used long-range as well as something that could cause extreme damage just in case. In a matter of months, he was performing skate tricks, making money from bets he'd wager, and skipping classes to hang out at the park. He was also losing sleep thanks to his new visitor. A lot is unknown about Victor's thoughts at this time, since he'd stopped journaling in favor of spending time with his new friends. This is around the time Clive stated he'd hear noises from Victor's room. I'm not sure, like moaning and crying sometimes. I should have asked him what was wrong. Though Marjorie was gone from home more days than she was there, her keen maternal instincts told her something was off one day when Victor wasn't home in time for dinner. Mom made us eat dinner together every night since she said she never saw us, which was true. She always worked and with football practice, I basically just used the house as a place to sleep. When Vic didn't come home that night, she freaked. That was Clive recounting the night of the murder. Victor hadn't been at school that day. Instead, he'd been at the skate park with his new friends. By all witness accounts, he lost track of time and didn't make it back for dinner that night because of an impromptu tournament the park was holding. He eventually made his way home around 9.30 p.m., well after dark. By the time he was on Crestfield Drive, Marjorie had already called the police and reported him missing. Since 48 hours had yet to pass, she took it upon herself to find him with the aid of Clive and a few neighbors. The small group of rescuers headed out, flashlights in hand. I guess he saw my letterman jacket, then the shape of my mom from behind a flashlight, and thought it was some kids from school trying to jump him. I don't know, a tearful Clive explained on the stand. He stopped short in the middle of the road, and by the time my mom shone her flashlight on him, he was pointing something at her and had fired. Victor sent the sharpened kitchen knife through his mother's skull, killing her instantly. Clive restrained the shaking Victor until the police arrived. He wasn't upset really, he was kind of just blank, Clive said. I still don't know if he knew it was my mom or thought it could be Ingrid. Victor Watson was charged with possession of a spring-loaded projectile knife and three counts of second-degree murder. He was sentenced to life in prison, and a second hearing to determine if Victor is eligible for parole was scheduled for 2028. However, after just three months of jail time, 
Victor, was found dead in his cell after an apparent suicide. Not much is known about what his mindset was at the time, since he was under the care of mental health professionals at Alexander Correctional Institution, placed in the red unit of this closed custody institution. Victor was cared for and served time for exactly three months, nine days before his suicide. This story is a tragic one that you probably listened through thinking it was real, but it wasn't. This entire case was fictionalized by author Augie Peterson. Augie is a horror author, and I've been a fan of her work for some time. So it seemed fitting that she would help me pull off this little Halloween prank on all of you listeners. Augie writes short horror stories, reviews horror movies with loads of snark, and even interviews indie creators like me. She does it all on two blogs and a podcast, The Short Stories of Augie Peterson. As a matter of fact, you can find the interview she did with me on her website linked in the show notes. If interviews aren't your thing, Augie also submitted a real horror story to my other podcast, It's Haunted, What Now? That's sure to send a chill down your spine. Find Augie on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and even Patreon. And from all of us here at the True Crime Fan Club, happy Halloween. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this prank of a story, please be sure to rate, subscribe, and positively review the show on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It really does help us out. You can find us on most social media platforms, Twitter at TCFCPod, Facebook.com slash TCFC podcast. You can also find us on Instagram, TCFC underscore podcast. And of course, our website is truecrimefanclub.com. Audio engineering and custom music for this show was provided by Nico at wetalkofdreams.com. Follow him on Twitter at wetalkofdreams. This episode was air quotes researched and written by Augie Peterson. You can follow Augie on Twitter at AugiePWrites. And you can follow Augie on Instagram at Augie Peterson Author. I'll, of course, link her social media and website on our show notes. Thanks again for listening. I'm your host, Lainey.